Sometimes, Father, you and I are like a three-legged horse, can't get across the finish line. Welcome back to the Tribal Brand Podcast. I am you, Winton. I hope you are well today. When's the last time you heard that song? Father and Farther by Jim Boyd. Came out when... uh, Smoke Signals came out in 1998. Awesome, awesome movie. Brought me to tears because it reminded me a lot of myself and my father. My dad was never abusive. He was never... Well, I take that back. He actually broke my nose once, so he was physically abusive one time that I can recall. I might have deserved that. I don't know. Uh, I kind of egged him on. might have called his wife a name. So... I always forgave him for that. It was a big party, man. We were all drinking anyway. I never hated my father. I never disliked him. I disliked what he was and what he stood for. But for the most part, I always loved my dad. And that's what I can't figure out about kids these days or people these days. They absolutely hate their parents. They hate their mothers and fathers. And for me, the way I see that is this. We all have our own journeys, our own river of life. And wherever that takes us, that's what we become. That's what we turn into. Life makes us what we are today. All the pains, all the struggles, all the hurt, all life's letdowns. Because let's face it, people. Let's face it, man. Life lets us down. I mean, how many of us really reach the goals that we set for ourselves when we're children? I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be a baseball player. That's what I was going to be, a baseball player. And that was my obsession from the time I could remember until I started to drink and smoke Mad Jane. For the most part, I mean, in the 8th grade, I'm practicing with varsity. My defense was astounding. The biggest problem I was having is I couldn't hit the damn ball. For some reason, it made me nervous standing in the box. I did okay. I mean, I hit probably 2, 220 or something, but could have been a lot better, man. Drugs and alcohol. Yeah. So getting back to Dad, my mother makes me go live with this guy in 1977. I didn't really know him. In fact, he was a stranger to me. But I thought it was kind of cool. All right, I get to go live with my dad, see what that's like. It was nothing but a freaking nightmare, man. Oh, yeah, it was It was perfect. It was the perfect training ground for a 15-year-old apprentice alcoholic. Yeah, that was where I had my apprenticeship, I should say. 1977. From like January 1977 to August 77. That was my short apprenticeship in becoming a alcoholic. So by the time everything really hit the fan, I was full blown. See, when I first went to live there, he didn't know how to be a dad any more than I knew how to be his son. We were two strangers thrown into a situation that we were new to. See, my dad had already done probably 12 years in the joint. In fact, the story goes, Patman took his first steps at Walla Walla, or was it Monroe? One of the two, 
visiting my daddy when I'm, what, a year old? That was the running joke for a little while. Hey, I took my first steps in the joint. I hope I don't take my last steps in the joint. Ha, ha, ha. Funny. Now, who comes up with these jokes? Who jokes about something like that? Meeting your father for the first time when you're a year old in the joint. Taking your first steps. Wow. So, my sister and myself are thrown into this situation. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention Melody got to go, too. So, she never really knew him, either. So, he's got two kids living with him. And right from the get-go is pretty dysfunctional. Pretty messed up. See, my dad had a little girl, Edith. She was probably a year old at the time. Dad and his wife, Lynn. And they drank every day. My dad worked at the Seattle Indian Center while Lynn worked downtown at some newspaper publishing place or something. See, they had skills. They had skills, but drinking was the topic of the day. See, that's what true alcoholics do is that's their main focus. Need to get off work so I can have me a brewski. And during the weekends, oh my my, that's when the real drink had started. Started from Friday from the time they got off work till the time they went back to work. And I was right in there. I was right in the mix. Would Dad wake up at 4 a.m. start drinking? Patman wake up at 4 a.m. start drinking. That's just the way it was in the Schaefer household. Complete, absolute dysfunction. That was another running joke. Look in the dictionary and look up the word dysfunction. And you'll find the Schaefer's right behind it. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. So they try to make me go to school. And I'm like... Yeah, okay, I'm going to go to school. Try to force me to go to the Indian school in Seattle. Chief Self, I tried, but at that time in my life, man, I was very, very uh, isolated. I should say introverted badly. I don't know why. I just didn't feel like I could fit in anywhere, man. Like, I don't belong here. What's going on? I guess every teenager goes through that, but, you know. I didn't understand it. I was just a dumb kid trying to figure out what the hell's going on in my life. So it was a lot of dysfunction, a lot of drinking. A lot of times I'd go to the Seattle Indian Center, let's say on a Friday after school or whatever I was doing. I'd catch a bus and once in a while I'd go in there to see my dad and he'd been drinking on the job. Yeah. And it was funny because he had no idea that everybody knew he was drunk. He was drunk as a fish and trying to act sober. And it was pathetic. It was really pathetic. He would tell me, hey, come here. He'd go in the back room and take a swig off a Thunderbird. Then take a swig off some scope or something. Mouthwash. And we'd walk back out there and everybody would be looking at him and Nobody would say, hey man, you should go home. So I'd get him out of there. I'd take him out of there. I'd say, come on, Dad, we got to get out of here. Let's go. Let's go home, man. So I'd get him out of there. And that was embarrassing. That was extremely embarrassing. I'm 15 years old. Bailing my dad's ass out of a work because he's trashed. Later in life, I experienced the same thing for myself. Yeah. The apple does not fall far from the tree, my friends. 
Not far from the tree at all. Anyway, more of that later. We're not talking about me right now. We're talking about him. So one time I'm walking him up to Lynn's work so we could get him over there. Because she had no idea. She didn't know he was been, been drinking on the job. She, you know, she took her shots, but at least she handled it until she got off. But we're going down the elevator and dad starts whipping it out. Like he thinks he's in the restroom or something. He's going to take a leak. And he does. He takes a leak right there in the elevator, man. Some old building. Thank God there wasn't a bunch of people in there or cameras back then. God, he just embarrassed the shit out of me. But that was dad. That was Don. Old one-armed Don. Yeah, you haven't heard the story about his one arm, have you? I'll give you a short story right now. So back in like 1965, 66, Dad's on the run from the penitentiary. He was on a work farm and he escaped. Went down to Oklahoma, Alabama, somewhere down there. Messing around, running around, had himself a girlfriend. Well, he decides he's going to uh, run down to the store and get some liquor. He's already had his heroin. So he's driving down the street, driving down the road with his arm sitting on the edge of the windowsill, you know, where it's kind of hanging out there and you're driving along. Well, he's so drunk, he sideswipes a pickup truck. And this is a story he tells me. It ripped his arm right off, tore it right off. And he said he wanted to get out of the car and beat the crap out of the guy, but he couldn't open the door. Because he didn't have an arm. So luckily he leaned down on his leg and it put enough pressure on there that it didn't kill him. And he passed, passes out, drives to his girlfriend's or something and, and she gets him to the hospital. So he wakes up the next day with no arm in a hospital. He's a convict on the run. He leaves the next day with one arm. And that's how I knew my dad. One-armed Don. Is that a crazy story? One of the craziest parts about that story is this. That's how I looked up to my dad. That's how I described my father to my friends. This is my hero. A guy who's escaped from the penitentiary, doing heroin and drinking, shacked up with a woman down in the south, driving, gets his arm ripped off, and he leaves the next day. That's my hero. That's who Patman looked up to. Are you kidding me? That's what I had to look up to? But when you're a kid, that's, that's pretty cool stuff. Every once in a while I tell that story to people now and they're like, Damn, your dad was crazy. Yeah, he was crazy, all right. But that was my dad. And there's one thing for sure. I never stopped loving my pops. It was my dad. Oh, there were years when I would be pissed off at him. There would be times when he would say something that would piss me off and I'd let him know. But for the most part, loved my father till the very end of his life. See, we always kind of stayed in touch over the years. And then back in like 2000, we stayed in touch until he died. He was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And that kind of broke my heart. Even though we'd had our issues over the years, that broke my heart. But the funny thing about Alzheimer's is this. After a short while, the victim has no clue what's going on, man. They just 
off in their own world. They called it uh, alcohol and drug related. So even though he had been sober for like 30 years, it came back and killed him. Oh yeah, one thing that my dad did while he was in prison, got his degree so he could be a drug and alcohol counselor. So he could help people stay clean and sober. And when he got out of the joint for the last time in like the mid-80s or something, he moved, he met his last wife, in fact, while he was in prison down in California. Cheney, I think, is what they called it. Some prison down there, co-ed prison. See, he got to do federal time for the last thing he pulled off because he ripped off the Indian Center in Seattle and that made it a federal offense. So once it becomes federal, man, you get to go to the, uh, I don't know, the clubhouse. So they get out of prison, they get married, they open up their own drug and alcohol treatment center. That's right. Took them a couple years, but they got it going. So by 1989, 1990, they're rolling in the dough, man. They're making all kinds of monies off of these people who are suffering from alcoholism and drug addiction. They were rolling in the dough. In fact, I tried to go there in the late 80s to try to sober up a little bit before I moved out of state. And it was kind of funny to me. My dad had become this law-abiding, sober asshole. Yeah, he was an asshole. He was arrogant, self-centered, selfish, indignant turd. They couldn't handle it. You see, money does a funny thing to people. When you never come from money and you don't know how to handle money, this is only my, my perception because I've never really had a lot of money, but what happened was they were buying cars and houses and boats and horses and all kinds of crazy stuff because they thought they were some they were something, thought they were really something. Turns out they weren't paying their taxes and the IRS says, Oh, no, no, no. IRS made him sell the business, and they had to go bankrupt and pay him for the next five years, and they got out of that. So, I always knew he was in it for the money. I always knew him and his wife had something going on. But during those times of wealth, not one word. Not one, hey, son, how you doing down there in Florida? He knew where I lived the whole time. Knew where I lived, but never really had any interest in what I was up to, which is cool. I get it. I understand it. Like I said, the apple does not fall far from the tree. That's a story for another day. Like I said earlier, leave me alone. So I watched this old man die from Alzheimer's. One of the saddest things I've had to witness, but I've witnessed a lot of things that break my heart. So I kind of put it all in a box, man. And I pull it out once in a while to have a look at it, have a thought about it, think about it. No matter what, he was still my dad, still my father, and I don't quite understand how anybody could hate their parents so much that they can't even say, hey, happy birthday, hey, happy Father's Day. We all go through our things in life. We all have our own reasons. Everybody has a good reason for what they do. Hell, even a mass murderer, even somebody who kills somebody has a good reason in their heart and in their mind why they're doing this. We all have our reasons. So I never stopped loving my dad. Never stopped giving a shit about him. There were times when we didn't speak for a couple of years, but we always stayed in touch somehow, some way. 
He was a prick. He was an arrogant, racist asshole. I didn't even know when his birthday was. I knew it's in August, somewhere around August 13th or 12th or 8th or something. Anyway, this is kind of my homage to my father on Father's Day. Even though I didn't podcast last week, I wanted to give some thoughts to all the men out there who are fathers and all you kids out there who have fathers. Let's try to remember them at least for one day. I know things are shitty, things are bad, things suck, balls. You have animosity and anger and whatever. Even for one minute, think about it. Think about something that you can pull out of there that's good. If you can't, then things must have been pretty bad. Because I had a pretty bad childhood. In fact, I don't even know why I'm still alive. I can't figure out why I'm still here. Why I never ended up in the joint. Because I made decisions early in life. Yeah, I screwed up a lot. But I made a decision to stop doing crime. When I'm 18 years old, I stopped doing stupid things, man. Because I said to myself, I ain't going to go to prison. I'm not going to go to the joint. I'm not going to spend my life there. Nah, way. In fact, my stepfather, Jack, who was probably 50-52 in the mid-70s, had done over half his life in the joint. He grew up over there in New York where crime was, man, it was about survival over there. New York, the Bronx. He grew up in Hell's Kitchen, wherever the hell that is. Him and my dad knew each other from prison. So they knew each other in the joint. And when they got out, they drank together, partied together, probably did a little heroin together because Jack, he was a heroin addict too. These are my heroes. These are the guys that I had to look up to as a kid. Look up to that. So, yeah. They weren't the greatest people in the world, but they still had an effect on me. They still had something that made me who I am today. Whether it was to turn my back on the bad things and move toward the good things, I don't know. I do not know. One decision might have saved my life. So my point is this. All you little turds out there who hate your father because maybe they took away the car keys and wouldn't let you go to the prom because they busted you stealing his money for some alcohol or whatever. Think about it for a second. Maybe he saved your life. Maybe he saved you from killing somebody else from being behind the wheel or something. Who knows? Give some love to your daddy. Give some love to your mother's. If it weren't for them, you wouldn't be here, you little turds. Got a daughter out there who won't have anything to do with me. Nothing. And she was the love of my day. I remember when she came into the world, I was a dishwasher at Denny's. And I'd be at work and I'd be thinking about her. She was only a month or two old. And I couldn't wait to get home to see her. I couldn't wait to just hold her. That was a love that I will never, ever, ever feel again. That was so unconditional, it's unbelievable. I changed my life. I quit drinking, quit smoking. Was doing a better thing for her. Unfortunately, I was married to a woman whose parents had absolute control over her and tried to control how I was to raise my child, how I was to be a husband. And I wouldn't stand for it. But my ex, she couldn't pull away. 
She ended up moving back with her parents. Long story short, she remarries some dude and they adopt my daughter while I'm living in Florida in 1989. I moved to Florida to save my life, to save my ass. She knew where I was at. They knew where I was at. But you know what they did to get her? They posted an ad in the Bellingham Herald and the Seattle Times saying they're going to adopt my daughter if I don't respond. They knew where I was at. They didn't post it in Florida. I did not know until my mom told me. A couple years later, she says, you know what? She was adopted. And the reason I stopped seeing my daughter is this. I went to see her when she was four years old. And her mother tells me, don't tell her who you are. I don't want her to know that you're her dad. I don't want her to be confused. I don't want her to be asking questions. In my mind at the time, I'm thinking, well, I want to see my little girl. I want to see my daughter. So I'll go go along with this. Although it ate me up, it, it drove me crazy. So I couldn't, I couldn't go see her anymore. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't deal with her not knowing who I was. But her mother thought that was okay. So when I'm in Florida, she gets adopted. Fast forward to 2001. My ex-wife calls me and says, Hey, I need you to meet me and your daughter in Port Angeles because she wants to become enrolled at the Elwa tribe. She wants to be able to go to college. She wants the free education. See, they needed my blood, my quantum, to get her enrolled down there. But I'm on my way to work. I'm like, no, I can't just drop what I'm doing. I got things. I got people who expect me to be to work. But she tells my daughter, I'm going to meet him down there. And I didn't. And she told her mom, that's the last chance he gets. He doesn't get any more chances. That was the only chance I got. So fast forward again to like 2011 or 12, my ex and my daughter blow into town. And they say, hey, your daughter's husband got stationed here in Tacoma. And we were wondering if you guys would like to watch the grandchildren while... I'm at work. And my wife, the loving wife that I have, says, Sure, we'll do that. The only stipulation from my daughter was this. They can't know who you are. You can't tell them that you're their grandfather. What's that old saying? Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. Yeah. Like a dumbass, I went for it. But you know what? The greatest thing that came out of that is this. I got to spend some time with my grandchildren and their grandmother on my daughter's husband's side told them who I was because she knew those kids had every right to know who their grandfather is. And I commend her for that. Shortly after that, Rachel found out they knew that I was their grandfather and she split. She left. Haven't heard a word since. Disappeared. Last time I saw her was on her birthday, October 26, 2012. I find it really, really, really satisfying knowing that those children knew who I was when they left. Absolutely satisfying. And deep down inside, I hope one day they show up at my door just to know who I am. Get to know who I am. Anyway, that was my Father's Day tribute. I hope you all have yourself a great week. And next weekend, I'm going to talk about... The 4th of the lie. I'm talking about the 4th of July, people. What does that day mean to you? What it means to me is this. Hot dogs, cheeseburgers, chips, and tater salad. 
A lot of tribes have themselves a big powwow just to remember their heritage, remember who they are, remember their ancestors. Don't think about the United States of America. Think about your ancestors. Think about your people, whether you're Caucasian, black, whatever. Just think about your people that day. It doesn't have to be about the flag and fireworks. Look at the fireworks. The Indians are getting their money back on them fireworks, okay? Anyway, I hope you all have yourselves a great week moving forward. I am you, Winton. Peace.